Hello, squad. Welcome or welcome back to Crime Squad Podcast with your host, me, Natasha. I'm coming at you from London, Ontario, my home city. Crime Squad Podcast brings you weekly episodes featuring true crime in Canada, both solved and unsolved. Today's episode is going to focus on two missing persons cases where people seemingly vanished without a trace. And I explain a little anecdote of something that happened in my own life. Okay, squad, you ready? Let's get into today's episode. Have you ever just wanted to disappear? What I mean by that is, have you ever fantasized about packing up a few things and leaving to start a new life? Everything is left behind. Nobody knows where you went. Personally, this had a draw for me when I was in my teens. I used to imagine buying a Greyhound bus ticket and heading wherever it would take me. For younger generation Canadians, I'm sure you have no idea what Greyhound is, or I should say was, because Greyhound closed its doors in Canada in 2021. This was a commercial bus line for long distance traveling. It was cheap, and anyone who's ever ridden long distance knows the trip is usually horrible. You can't control who your seatmate is, the bathrooms on a commercial bus with a ton of strangers using them are extremely nasty, you get the idea. Anyway, the idea of going somewhere where I was just an unknown and starting fresh had a certain appeal to it. I romanticized what life would be like if I did that. In fact, in 2005, when I was just a wee teenager under the age of 18, I had already left home and was living with my boyfriend and his parents. I was really suffering from depression when it came to the war in Iraq and I had found my way onto mailing lists, and I'm talking actual mail, not email, of many left-wing organizations who sent me flyers for protests and rallies in the mail. It was through one of these, I found out there was gonna be a rally in Washington, D.C. to protest the Iraq war. I leapt into this full force. I packed a small backpack with a change of clothes, my student ID and birth certificate. Still in high school, I obviously didn't have a driver's license or passport. And I took a city bus to the downtown core where the Greyhound bus station used to be in London. I purchased a Greyhound bus ticket to Buffalo, New York. In Buffalo, on the university campus, I was supposed to meet with a group of individuals who had hired a commercial bus to complete the drive to Washington. This was pre-cell phone, at least for me. I had a video camera, a big old JVC to boot, before they became small and cute and compact. This one still had a cassette tape you put in the recorder that you recorded onto. I also had a disposable camera, I'm pretty sure it was called a fun saver, that used, yes, can you believe it, real film. Basically, it was going to be a bunch of hippies banding together to support what we all believed in so much, which was that President George Bush should be impeached and no more blood for oil. Now again, 
This is all pre-cell phone. So on a scrap of paper, I had written down the phone number of the person I was supposed to call when I arrived at the university. The bus ride took several hours, probably close to six hours because there are multiple stops usually on these bus routes. I crossed the border without incident and called a cab to take me to Buffalo University because I had no idea how else I was supposed to get there. I had no instructions on where I was supposed to meet everyone who was going to be taking the bus from the university to finish the trip. The campus was extremely dark at this point, and the cab driver said to me words I will never forget. Be careful out there, eh? Make sure you go into a building quickly if you can. Two people were raped out here last week. The gravity of what I was doing suddenly hit me. I was a 17-year-old kid, alone without any form of communication in a foreign country, foreign to me anyway as a Canadian. I didn't let my fear show as I walked on wobbly legs to the library building the cab driver had dropped me off at. I went in, found a payphone on the wall, put in a quarter, and dialed the number on my scrap of paper. Nobody answered. Honestly, folks, these days, with my diagnosed anxiety disorder, I don't even like thinking about it. But teenage me was as cool as a cucumber. Teenage me, with my heart in my throat and a feeling of dread and nervousness that I was now completely fucked over because I had nowhere to go, decided to go out for a quick walk to see what I could find. I found another payphone at some point and dialed my boyfriend. I'm stuck in Buffalo and I don't have anywhere to stay and I'm kind of freaking out because the cab driver told me two girls were raped here last week and they haven't caught the guy. Obviously, everyone back home was panicked, but I said I would be okay and I would call them again soon. Truthfully, I had no idea what my plan was. And this is where the story gets really Canadian. So Tim Hortons is a cafe chain that started in Canada and slowly made its way to the U.S. as years wore on. What began as a Canadian-only chain is now prevalent in the States. At the time, though, it wasn't. And as I walked aimlessly without any direction in mind, I spotted a Tim Hortons across what looked like a small highway outside of the university grounds. I have no idea why I thought that was going to be the thing that saved me, but something about seeing that familiar signage made me feel like it was all going to be okay. I started to try to figure out how I was going to cross that highway and if I was tall enough to climb over the huge concrete barriers that were there, so I just kept walking. Then, to my left, I heard loud voices and music. I looked over and saw a commercial bus parked with a ton of people standing around it. The Grateful Dead was blasting out of someone's speakers. The women were in long flowing skirts and sandals. I knew this had to be where I was supposed to be. And it was. But in all the excitement and the fact that there were no payphones on the bus, and we still had a full 24-hour bus ride ahead of us, it didn't occur to me that I probably should have called my boyfriend back and said I wasn't still lost. So I totally didn't do that to tell him I was okay. Apparently, though, this didn't seem strange to him because he didn't report me missing and I was gone for literally three full days. One full day at the rally and two just in travel time. Anything could have happened to me. And when I reflect on the many reckless things I did in my youth, I often think about how it could have played out instead. Missing person cases particularly haunt me. 
Yes, of course, all crime is horrible. But there's something about not having the closure with missing persons cases. My mind is very active in its imagination. And I have researched and continue to research the horrible things people do to each other. So I don't know if I could handle not knowing. How about you? Today's episode is going to explore several missing persons cases that have not been solved. The older cases don't have a little, a lot of information to draw from, but I will do my best as always to paint a picture for you of who they were, as well as provide contact information if anything in these cases rings a bell for whatever reason. Someone out there knows something. People do not simply vanish without a trace. You never know if the information you have could be a missing link. Let police and investigators decide that. Report it. Okay, squad, let's get into today's cases. Dean Curtis Mortensen was, by all accounts, a good kid. He grew up in a hamlet in Alberta. Fun fact, I had to look up what a hamlet was, and it's defined as a human settlement that is smaller than a town or a village. Grand Cache, which is where Dean grew up, has a population of about 3,200 people as of a 2021 census. And historically, since about 1971, Grand Cash hasn't even gone above, hasn't ever gone above a population of 4,600 people. So very small, very small town. Dean played hockey every winter. He was good too. When he graduated high school at the top of his class, he was accepted into the University of Alberta in Edmonton, about four hours away from his hometown. Childhood friend Stephen Belland would also be accepted and they would live down the hall from each other in the same residence. Dean began his first year in the general science program and was living at St. Joseph, Joseph's College residence. The residence was a close-knit group of men, about 65 in total. Dean played defenseman for the Rangers, the dorms hockey team. As an outsider looking in, life was great for Dean. I have scoured newspaper archives across Canada as well as internet sources, and I was unable to locate any other photos of Dean other than the graduation photo from high school. In the picture, Dean sports the traditional graduation gown. He is wearing a white collared shirt with a black tie. His hands are placed on what appears to be a prop desk, one hand over the other. Dean has an oval facial shape with a full head of brown hair. The style is cut neat and trim, not a hair out of place. Dean has deep set eyes, they appear to be hazel green in color. His brows are prominent lines and his nose is slightly large for his face and pointed. The smile on the photo seems somewhat forced, but we all know what posing for school photographers was like. His lips are thin and slightly upturned in a small smile. He looks wholesome and kind. Dean, who was 18 in his first year of college, clocked in at approximately six foot one and 165 pounds. This would make him tall, but also relatively lanky. Childhood friend, Stephen Belland, who as a reminder, grew up with Dean in Grand Cash and was living just down the hall from Dean in the same residence, said of Dean, quote, he was a super bright guy and re really responsible. 
He was the only guy in the dorm who made his bed every day. End quote. He also said Dean was fairly quiet and never even uttered swear words. He was thought of as old-fashioned, like someone out of a Norman Rockwell painting. I also want to clarify for a second, there is a lot of ambiguity about Dean's age. Some articles say he was 18, and others say 19. There was actually nothing official that I was able to find to even be able to verify his age. On January 23rd, 1992, a Thursday, Dean, along with other individuals from the residence, including Stephen Belland, decided to go to a nearby pub for a few drinks. The pub was called The Ship and was about a five-minute walk from the residence. Although Dean wasn't a big drinker, he had apparently downed a few vodka slimes. Now, I had to look at this up too because I've never heard of it. And vodka slimes are apparently a cocktail of vodka, soda, and lime juice. Sometimes they're made with lemonade, but at any rate, they actually sound really delicious. So Stephen, the friend of Dean, recalls that he made it an early night and he was in his own bed in his dorm room long before midnight. But Dean had decided to stay behind with two friends. Now, Dean did have classes the next morning of January 24th. His earliest class was at about 10.30 a.m. So he and a friend decided to leave the pub just after midnight, around five hours after they'd first arrived, so a pretty decent time there. The other friend wanted to stay just a little bit longer, and so he did. Dean and the one friend began walking back to their residence, and they just reached the Universaid Pavilion, which is also known by locals as the Butter Dome, apparently due to its rectangular shape and bright yellow exterior. The friend Dean was with said he'd left something at the bar and he had to go back to get it. Dean opted not to follow his friend, but he said he'd wait for him at the Butter Dome. So to set the stage here a little bit, because Alberta can be really cold, especially in the winter, the temperature just after midnight on January 24th was around minus 16 degrees Celsius, according to historical weather data. So that is obviously way below freezing. And to me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense that Dean would wait for his friend outside when the residence was so close. And I mean, where they were standing, it was like 100 meters away. Um, but this is what happened, apparently, by all accounts. The friend said he would be right back. And he claims he actually ran back to the pub, found the item he was looking for, and then ran right back to the butter dome. But there was one problem. When the friend got back to the Butter Dome, Dean wasn't there. So, okay, let's be realistic. If I were that friend, we'd all had a couple drinks, I probably would have assumed Dean got cold and just went back to his dorm room. Um, and just to confirm, like, clothing-wise, at the time Dean was last seen, he was wearing blue jeans, a St. Joseph Rangers hockey jer jersey, a blue corduroy St. Joseph's baseball cap, Nike running shoes, and a blue and white Grand Cash Bantam hockey jacket. So, I mean, he was dressed for the weather, sort of, but not for minus 16. He would have been cold. The next morning, Dean missed his 10.30 a.m. class. 
And remember, Dean was really like a good guy. He was known as a diligent and responsible student. So this was completely out of character for him. Prior to class, Stephen, again, the longtime friend that he had known in Grand Cash, knocked on his dormitory door to try to wake him up. Because Stephen thought, you know, maybe Dean overslept. He did have some drinks. He doesn't usually drink. Um, but then Dean missed the rest of his classes that day into the afternoon. So Stephen actually became worried and he reported this to an older student in the residence hall who had access to keys to enter rooms. He had the student open the door to Dean's room and Stephen reports that the bed was perfectly made and it didn't appear Dean had been back to his room at all the night before. Searches began immediately on campus with Dean's friends and campus security searching for him. The community also banded together when police were called, and the investigation into Dean's disappearance continued. On January 31st, there was seemingly a break in the case. It was reported that a librarian had found a blue corduroy baseball hat with St. Joseph's insignia on it in a neighbor's backyard. Police confirmed the hat did, in fact, belong to Dean, but never released any indication on how they knew this. In my gut, I just have a feeling that they assumed it was his because DNA testing really wasn't at its best in the early 90s, but we may never know. This is the first and final clue that ever presented itself. By February 7th, 1992, there was a small notation in the Edmonton Journal on page 18 that was just a few sentences long. It read, quote, City police have ended their search for a missing University of Alberta student. Dean Curtis Mortensen, 18, was last seen in the early morning hours of January 24th near the Butter Dome at the University of Alberta campus and has not been heard from since. Police consider his disappearance unusual, but not suspicious. End quote. Okay, so this has got to be one of the shortest searches and strangest conclusions I've actually seen to date. You have a promising young student go missing who has no reason to be missing and the search is called off after only 15 days? Okay, squad, I wanna break this down. I'd love to know what you think happened. Feel free to comment your thoughts on the post I'll be making on my Instagram at crime squad pod. So first things first, why do police believe the disappearance was unusual but not suspicious? Apparently, they felt that despite no warning signs and everything going well for Dean, he committed suicide. Now, I understand that there are not always warning signs when a person is thinking about taking their own life. And I understand as well as anyone who has been in the depths of depression with suicidal thoughts, that sometimes there is no logic behind wanting to commit the act of suicide. Sometimes life seems great and should feel great, but in reality, there is a darkness below the surface that takes everything from you and makes it difficult just to get up in the morning and go about normal life. The thing of it is, though, that no body has ever been found. I just have so many thoughts in my mind. If Dean was going to kill himself that night, because usually suicides are planned events, why did the disappearance seem so random? Like, what if the friend hadn't actually forgotten anything at the pub, and then the two of them just simply continued their walk back to their respective dorm rooms? 
was Dean planning to leave his room later that night for the final act? It just seems so random that he'd vanish in a mere matter of minutes. So police believed Dean jumped off something called the High Level Bridge. The body of water underneath the bridge is the North Saskatchewan River. In some of the research I've done, other web sleuths suggest that the river would have been frozen at this time of year. However, I was able to find some information that indicated a small portion of the river would not have been frozen. Each year, there is a band of water a few feet across and several hundred meters long that doesn't freeze. Reportedly, this is because the University of Alberta campus's heating and cooling system. Hot water is pumped out of pipes and into the river, thereby making this particular portion liquid instead of ice. Based on this, it could be possible Dean did randomly decide to take off while waiting for his friend to come back from the pub, then decide to jump off the bridge. Maybe he had planned it and was going to do this after he returned from the pub. To me, it isn't really plausible, but suicide is often nonsensical to people who aren't in that mindset. It just doesn't fit, though, because there's no suicide note to speak of and no indication, according to friends and family, that Dean was anything but excited for his future. By May of 1992, when spring was in the air and things had thawed out, police and search and rescue organizations began to sweep the river for any remains that would indicate Dean was deceased. Nothing was found. So enter theory number two. That was that Dean had decided to leave his life and start a new one. The theory is that he wanted to pick up and start fresh somewhere new. But the evidence points far away from this, considering Dean had only a $20 bill that he'd taken out of an ATM on Thursday, which for all intents and purposes might have even been what he used to pay for his drinks at the pub. Dean's bank account, containing about $3,000, was never accessed after he disappeared. In any case, Dean's disappearance still sumps people to this day. Friends and family have a difficult time believing he would have committed suicide. And I can sympathize with them because nobody who experiences a loved one leaving the earthly realm by their own hand wants to believe they could do such a thing. And if it's true, remaining friends and family members don't want to believe that they could have missed the signs. It's dangerous territory and a breeding ground for the playing game. The University of Alberta honors Dean with the Dean Mortensen Award. This award was created in memory of Dean. The university rewards four students each year with the award, which has a $1,000 value as well as the recipient's name engraved on a trophy. To perpetuate what Dean was about, the award is provided to a student who shows a strong participation in the university's campus recreation and intramural programs, as well as strong leadership skills and a dedication to others. I can only imagine how Dean's mother must feel. As a parent myself, and soon to be a mom of two, I would always wonder where my son was and if he was okay. And she still does to this day. If you know something about Dean's disappearance, even if you think it is not significant, please contact the Edmonton Police Service at 780-423-4567 or Edmonton Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. 
You can also submit your tip online through Edmonton Crime Stoppers. Please reference the EPS file number when possible. The EPS file number is 92-11461. The pain of not knowing. It has to be one of the harshest, painful experiences possible. Imagine your child goes missing, but throughout the years, police keep receiving reports of sightings. Each time you feel like you're closer to seeing the child who walked away so many years ago, but each time nothing comes to fruition. This is the fate of Bilyana Zelik and her son Beta. To this day, they wonder where their beloved family member is. Dana Zelik was born on November 10, 1972, in the city of Hamilton in Ontario. She and her younger brother Beta grew up together in a two-parent household until Dana was 11 years old. That was when her parents divorced, and this had a crushing effect on Dana. Liliana, Dana's mother, recalls that Dana wanted to move in with her father, who was leaving the family residence, but the answer was no. This devastated Dana. Being a single mother is difficult, I can only imagine. My brother and I grew up with a single mother, and life could be tough at times. My mother worked a lot, leaving me to do the majority of the childcare for my younger sibling. This is what Biliana remembers life being like after the divorce. To support her two children, she took on multiple jobs. Four, actually. She worked at a factory, a restaurant, a market, and a variety store. Looking back, she recalls Beta and Dana saying they missed her and that they wished she would work less. Dana went to high school at Delta Secondary School, and throughout she was described as a so-so student. She did have a class she enjoyed, though, which was drama class. Once Dana graduated from high school, she decided to embrace her freedom by traveling to faraway places. For instance, she spent several months in Switzerland with a cousin of Bilyana's. Dana also traveled throughout Ontario and into New York State. After some traveling, Dana returned home to Hamilton, where she lived with a boyfriend for a while. At 21 years of age, Dana was diagnosed with depression and was taking medication to help with the symptoms. At some point, Dana fell into a deep depression, and medication wasn't enough. So about a month before she disappeared, she spent a month as an inpatient at a hospital in Hamilton. Shortly after this, the relationship between Dana and her boyfriend ended, prompting Dana to move back home with her mother. Dana was ready to look at broadening her career horizon, so she enrolled in a tourism program. She clearly enjoyed traveling and wanted to see what opportunities it could provide for her. When Dana moved back in with Biljana, her mother observed Dana wasn't sleeping well. She was also losing weight. Dana, at 5 foot 6 inches and 100 pounds, couldn't stand to lose weight. When I look at pictures of Dana, I see a slight young woman. 
She has a round face and beautiful long brown hair. She has thick eyebrows, the same color as her hair, framing large almond-shaped brown eyes. Her Her nose is pointed and fits her face really well. It's petite like her other features. Her large grin reveals straight, bright, sparkling white teeth under pink lips. And she has a distinctive beauty mark on the left side of her throat. It was in the late night hours of August 30th, 1999, at the age of 26, that Dana mysteriously went missing. The events leading up to this were relatively normal. Biliana recalls sitting on the couch in the living room reading a book until approximately 3 a.m. Dana was asleep in her bedroom, but was oddly dressed in regular clothes. She was wearing a plaid shirt and jeans, and instead of being tucked into the blankets, Dana was laying on top of them. Biliana says she fell asleep between 2.30 and 3 a.m. and woke up at about 7.30 in the morning. Dana was gone. Initially, Biliana wasn't suspicious of this in and of itself. After all, Dana was 26 years old, and her medication and wallet containing her ID was still in the house. But as the hours and then days ticked by, Biliana was uneasy. She called police to report Dana as a missing person. Now, squad, this is where it gets strange, at least in my mind. As police began their investigation, Biliana, who was beside herself, began scouring local newspapers for any information she could find that might lead her to Dana. Two weeks after she disappeared, as Biliana flipped through the pages of the Hamilton Spectator, she stopped on a page with a large photograph. I can only imagine the sharp intake of breath, the increase in heart rate, and the flush that would have hit her cheeks like fire. There, in the photograph of a take-back-the-night rally, was Dana. She had her head turned away from the camera, but it was unmistakable. A mother knows her daughter, even in photograph form. She was wearing the same clothes Biliana remembered her leaving the house wearing. In the photograph, Dana appeared to have her arms linked with another female, one Biliana didn't recognize. She immediately called the detective assigned to Dana's missing persons case as a million questions ran through her mind. Why hadn't Dana reached out in that two weeks? Who was the woman she was with? Why was she in that rally? These questions, of course, weren't answered. Dana had still not made contact and police didn't have the answers. There were a few more sightings of Dana in the early weeks of her being a missing person. Nothing ever panned out. In August of 2000, when Dana had been missing for a year, she called a male friend who lived in Hamilton. Somehow, according to sources, this male friend had no idea Dana was considered a missing person. In the conversation, she mentioned she was living in Mississauga. There was no other information about this. What we do know is that this phone call wasn't enough to locate Dana either because she's still missing. The tips and sightings slowed down significantly after the first year. 20 years later, there was a big break in the case, but not in the way that you'd think. That photograph of Dana and the spectator at the Take Back the Night rally? Well, 
When The Spectator ran a story 20 years after Dana's disappearance, um, the detective on the case was actually contacted by two women who said the photo wasn't of Dana and a mystery woman. The photo was of them. The, te the detective then went to work confirming their identities. And after all this time, it was confirmed that photograph was never a picture of Dana. It really was the two women who came forward 20 years later. Now, in the 24th year of Dana simply vanishing without a trace, one question still remains. What happened to Dana Zelik? If you have any information about this case, even if you aren't sure if it's significant, please contact Detective Chris Gates at the Hamilton Police Criminal Investigation Branch at 1-905-546-2919. If you would prefer to remain anonymous, you can reach out to Crime Stoppers at CrimestoppersHamilton.com or by calling 1-800-222-8477. So that's going to do it, loyal listeners. I do thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Crime Squad Podcast. As always, I will post photographs on my Instagram at Crime Squad Pod. Consider following. That would be great. Also, stay tuned because I do have a giveaway coming up with a couple of moose hide pins and my favorite custom stickers made by a great little local business called Uniquely Paper Crafted. I'm so excited to pair with Erin to offer listeners a giveaway. Be sure to rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any of my weekly episodes. And as always, if you have an idea for a case you'd like me to cover, drop me an email at crimesquadpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram. And as always, remember, stay safe and be kind to each other. I'll catch you next week. Mm -hmm.